So my family and I have been here at ECC for about two and a half years. And for most of that time, I've been under the impression that Pastor Chris liked me. Uh, we would go to lunch together pretty regularly. We talk about life and our families and ministry and theology and scripture and the, the world around us and pastoring. We have great conversations. He, he even buys my hamburger when we go to Lindy's together. So I thought that we were friends. Then I got a text a couple of months ago asking if I would preach in June. And I, my immediate response was, well, of course, I would love to. I'm, I'm honored that Chris asks me to preach. So I texted back, what's the passage? And he then uh, texted me back, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I kind of thought in my mind, all right, 1 Corinthians 11, that's great, as long as it's not 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16. So I texted him back, what verses? And he said, 1 through 16. So last fall, you might remember, if you were around here, uh, we did a series on gender and identity, and Chris asked me to preach, and I said I'd be happy to. And, and then I asked, what do you want me to preach about? And he said it'll be the first couple of sermons in our gender and identity series. And, and now this, so I'm, I'm making commitment from here on out, before I agree to preach on anything, I'm going to ask what the passage is first and then make my decision going on from there. The passage that we have before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is a challenging passage. It's a passage that talks about hair length and head coverings and the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives. It raises questions about power and questions about authority. And I have to say, this really is one of the most difficult passages that I know of in the New Testament, not because or simply because of the content, which can be challenging for us in our day and our time to kind of hear what's really going on here. But it's difficult just because there's a lot of stuff going on that Paul is doing with language, with the Greek, with different constructions that he's using that are very, very difficult for us to to translate, for us to interpret. So what I want to do in our time that we have together this morning is really just scratch the surface of what is going on here. We could do a couple of months on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We could dig into lots of different kind of nuances and things that are going on here in ways that that biblical scholars, people who know way more about the Bible, way more Greek than I do, things that leave them scratching their heads and and wondering what's going on here. So there's lots of different ways that that these things can be interpreted. And and so what I want to do in this time this morning, as I said, is just try to get us an overall picture, an overall view of what's going on in this passage. My goal is not going to be to work carefully through every single verse. We're going to dig in at a couple of places and really anchor our thinking in some of the key verses but I want to make sure that we have our mind around the key issues, the key highlights, and then really take the overall point of the passage. What is it saying to us? What is it saying to us, ECC, in the United States in the mid-21st century? What is it saying to this church, to this congregation? 
So what we're going to do is I'm going to read verses 2 through 12 in, in just a second. Just kind of read it all at once so that the, the content of the passage is out there in front of us. And then after that, we're going to do a couple of things to establish some context and then dig into the passage itself. But first, let's pray and ask for God's blessing as we open up his word together. Heavenly Father, I want to give you thanks for your word. It is a word of truth, and and there are places that we come to like this passage where it can be very difficult for us to, to understand it, and yet we know that you have truth for us here. We know that you desire for us to learn and to understand and, and even to wrestle and to struggle with these passages. And I pray, God, now as I open up the word that you would you would speak to us, that your spirit would be at work among us. Open up our minds, open up our hearts to what you have for us this morning. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 2 through 12. Paul says this, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions, just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair off. But if if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman but everything comes from God. You see why I'm pretty sure that Chris doesn't like me? What do we do with this passage? There's so much going on here. There's so much that sounds so foreign to our ears. There's so much history also of the way that this passage has been used, and frankly, the way that this passage has been abused. That We have to be very clear as best as we can, what we understand this passage to be saying. What is it saying? What does it mean? How is it talking to us today? The first thing that we want to do is take a bit of a step back from the passage and establish the narrative frame. There's a place in your notes where you can write that down. Establishing the narrative frame. To do our best with this passage, we need to establish the narrative frame. What is that? What does that mean? So imagine that you and I are hanging out in the lobby at ECC on a Sunday morning, and you're standing there eating a donut, and I walk up to you, and I say to you, 
hey, I, I broke into my neighbor's house yesterday. How would you respond? Well, I, I'm guessing you might kind of nervously take a, a bite of your donut and, and wonder what on earth is going on here. And if you wanted to engage the conversation, you would probably ask me, why? Right? Why did you break into your neighbor's house? By asking why, you're asking for more information to make sense of the information that you have just received. You're asking for more of the story. You're asking for narrative frame. How do I make sense of what Joel just said? I need more of the story, right? So you ask me why in order to have understanding of the narrative frame. Now, depending on how I answer that will determine what kind of a a story we're in, what's going on here, right? If if you ask me why did you break into your neighbor's house, and I respond with, well, because I wanted to steal his 70-inch plasma screen TV, now we're in one story, a very particular kind of a story. But if I say, well, my neighbors are on vacation, and I saw some smoke coming out of their house, and I ran over there, and the doors were locked, so I broke in to try to put out the fire, well, well now we're in a very different kind of story. Right? The narrative frame starts to make sense of the information that I gave you just by saying I broke into my neighbor's house. Now there is a story, a context around which the information that I gave you, you can kind of assimilate and start to make sense of. Right? So if we don't understand the narrative frame, we aren't going to have right understanding. And that's how it is with any biblical passage. That's how it is particularly when we come to these kinds of challenging biblical passages. With this passage, if we don't get the frame right, if we don't understand the story that we're in properly, then we can interpret this passage that takes us into very different stories. In a passage like this, that has often happened. It's happened over and over and over again in the life of the church. It's This passage has been used to to justify subordination of women, to justify the power and the authority of men. This is the wrong way to interpret this passage. But how do I know that? I know that because if we have the right, right narrative frame in place, then we can see that the passage isn't describing that kind of a story. This passage is actually telling a very different story. And it's that story that we want to be clear about as we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what I'm going to do here is look at the narrative frame first, put this passage in that proper narrative context, and then from there we'll be able to dig into the passage. So, What's the proper narrative frame? What story are we in? What story is being told here about men and women and husband and wives and hair length and head coverings and all the things that are going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? All right, so the first step to this is the immediate narrative frame, which is the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, right? Paul has written this letter to the Corinthian church, this letter that we've been studying in this series. And one of the things that we see very clearly when we read through 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthian church is a mess. The Corinthian church is a disaster. The church at Corinth was a toxic church culture. 
And at the heart of this toxic church culture is what's at the heart of every toxic church culture, the struggle for power. The struggle for power is tearing apart the Corinthian church. There's division, there are hierarchies, there are factions, there are really messed up sexual practices going on here. There is a relationship between the rich and the poor that is not consistent with the gospel. There is a messy church culture in Corinth. And Paul's letter is written to confront this toxic culture. This letter is a frontal assault on the church culture at Corinth. Paul, in writing this letter, is challenging the factions. He's challenging the divisions. He's challenging the hierarchies. He's challenging the sexual practices. He's challenging the relationship between the rich and the poor and how these are playing out in the church of Corinth in ways that are dishonoring to the name of Jesus. Because at the heart of Paul's concern is the honor of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, who came to establish a new people that wouldn't look like the world around us, but would reflect the kingdom of God. The problem is that the Corinthian church looked everything like the world around them, very little like the kingdom of God. So when we put 1 Corinthians 11 in the context of the letter of 1 Corinthians, what we see is that Paul's letter is intended to bring unity, to bring oneness, to bring peace to the church, to break down false hierarchies and divisions, to encourage the spirit of Christ to be among the people of the church of Corinth. So in coming to 1 Corinthians 11, putting it in this narrative frame, we can see it's not about creating hierarchies between men and women. It's not about establishing relations of power that divide. It's not about promoting a power struggle between women and men. It is about the gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel of peace, the gospel of unity, the gospel of oneness as we are bound together in Christ Jesus. So Paul wants to encourage the Corinthian church in their witness to Jesus, and he's tackling issues that are keeping them from accurately reflecting who Jesus is to the world around them. So that's the first part of the narrative frame, the place that 1 Corinthians 11 holds within the letter to uh, the Corinthians. But there's a second one that broadens it out even further, and that is, putting this letter in the context of the narrative frame of who God is, of the doctrine of the Trinity. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read there that God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. What we see is that Paul here is referring to that which has been written in Genesis chapter 1, that God created humanity in the image of God, male and female, which is a picture of male and female oneness, male and female mutuality, because the God that we image is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who is the triune God. And in the life of the triune God, there is oneness, there is unity, There is not hierarchy in the life of God. 
There is not hierarchy in the relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not relations of power. There's not a struggle for power within the Trinity. Struggles for power come when one is striving to assert the self over others, when one is trying to establish our own superiority or assert our own will over against others. These are relationships of power. There's not such a thing in the doctrine of the Trinity, in the life of God. God is not struggling for power with God. In the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is unity. There is oneness. We are created in that image, male and female. As created by God, Male and female are not created to be in power relationships. Male and female are not created to be broken off into factions that are striving for power over against one another. These are not relations of competition and violence as created by God. These kinds of relationships are what arise after humanity has rebelled against God, and we are asserting our own selves over against others. And that's what creates divisions and factions and hierarchies. But in the original creation intention of God, that did not exist. That was not the intent. The intent, again, is oneness and unity, a togetherness that reflects the very image of God. So the doctrine of the Trinity as a narrative frame tells us that we are in the story of renewal, that what Paul is talking about in in chapter 11 is a story of renewal of relationships between men and women, between husbands and wives. It's a call to a return to relationality that reflects the peace, the doctrine of the Trinity, the oneness of the life of God, that you and I were created to dwell in that oneness in our relationships with one another is those who belong to Jesus Christ are intended to be a reflection to ourselves and to the world around us of who God is, reflection of the divine life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is the narrative frame within the, the letter to the Corinthians, within the larger theme of who God is and how we as humans, and male and female are to reflect who God is. That's the frame that we need to bring to this passage. It's not encouraging the ongoing toxic relationality of the Corinthian church. It's not about creating factions between men and women. It's about disrupting the hierarchies that the Corinthian church has created in reflection of the culture around them. So with all that in mind, now we can turn to dig in a little bit more to the passage itself. What is Paul getting at here? What is Paul addressing, particularly now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Paul is addressing a question of order. So much of the Corinthian letter is about order because their life was so disordered. The way that they were living together was so destructive of one another. So Paul is calling them to live according to the order that is to mark them as those who belong to Christ Jesus. This order is the order of faith, hope, 
and love. It's the order of the life of Christ. It's the order that comes when the Spirit is at work among a people. It's an order that brings peace and brings oneness to a community. Paul wants the Corinthian church to live an ordered life in reflection of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So he says this, going back into the passage now in verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. He then goes on in verses 3 through 6 to say, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophecies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. So some observations about these verses. First, we're in a section in Corinthians where Paul is talking about the worship gathering. There's some things going on in the worship gathering of the Corinthians that are disordered. The worship gathering of the Corinthians is not reflecting the honor of God or the honor of each other that it is supposed to reflect. When Christians come together to worship God, we are to honor God and we are to honor each other in that gathering. And there are a number of things that Paul's addressing that are going on in the worship gathering at Corinth that are doing the opposite of that. They're dishonoring God and they're dishonoring each other. That is what's at the heart of what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing the worship gathering of the Corinthians and the desire for that worship gathering in Paul's heart to be a gathering that honors God and that honors each other. And in particular, it seems that there is something going on here in the relationship between husbands and wives and how they are carrying themselves in these gatherings. A quote from a commentary that I read on this says this, the issue of immediate concern in this passage is head coverings in worship. And yet the fundamental issue is about how God's glory is expressed through the visible deportment of husbands and wives in the public gathering of local churches, which in turn reflects the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So what's at the heart of this here is Paul's concern for the glory of God, that that God be rightly worshipped, that God be rightly honored as the Corinthian church is gathered together. And for Paul, the right honoring of God is going to be reflected in the behaviors and practices, particularly in this text, about of husbands and wives in the worship gathering. And the key verse here is verse 3. I'll read it again. It says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. This is a verse that has often been used to justify male authority over women. 
to justify the subordination of women to men. But what we've seen from the narrative frame is that that's not what's going on here. Something else is going on here. And at the heart of this challenge that verse 3 puts before us is what is the word that is interpreted here, head. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of God is Christ. People have often interpreted this to mean that there is a hierarchical relationship between God the Father, God the Son, the man, and the woman. It puts the woman at the bottom of this hierarchical structure. That's not what's going on here. So we have to understand what Paul is doing by this word head. And it's the translation of a Greek word, kephale. I cannot begin to imagine how many pages have been written about this word. One commentary I looked at spent 80 pages discussing the possibilities of how to translate and understand kephale. Looking back into the ancient Greek uses of how it was used, looking at how it was developed over time. And I'm not going to bore you with the research on all 80 pages. I want to just boil it down to two key options that are going on here of how to translate this word kephale. The first, and you have a place to write this down, is authority over. This is understanding this as the idea of headship. That, that, that the man has headship over the woman, which puts, which puts male and female into a relationship of hierarchy. The man is superior, the woman is inferior, the woman is subordinate. This is used this way at times in the Greek world in terms of political offices, but it's actually pretty rare to have this term used to describe the authority of a greater and a lesser. There's another Greek word for authority that is the much more common word that you would use for this. And in fact, Paul uses that word later in this very passage in verse 10. So we would think if Paul wanted to be using a word that would describe this idea of authority, that he would use the Greek word that is usually the word that means authority. Instead, there seems to be something else going on here. And that is the second option. The option of understanding this as source of. Understanding kephale as source of. Some of us, I imagine, have been to Itasca State Park. I've never been to Itasca State Park, but but we all know if we live in Minnesota, what is at Itasca State Park? It's the headwater of the Mississippi River, right? It's that place where you can jump over the Mississippi River, where it starts. It's its source. I think this is what's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is talking not about headship as authority over and authority under. He's talking about relationships of source. So again, this takes us back to the doctrine of the Trinity. In the traditional teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity, we understand that the Father is the source of the Son. And the Father and the Son are the source of the Spirit. What this means is that there is order in the Godhead, but it's not hierarchical order. It's not an order of power struggle where the Father is greater than the Son, or the Father is better than the Son. 
To say that the Father is the source of the Son is not to say that the Father is greater than the Son. It's to say that there is an ordered relationship within the life of God. The Father and the Son are equal. They are both God. It's not a greater than, lesser than relationship. It's a relationship of order. There is order in the Trinity, but there is not hierarchy in the Trinity. Paul, in echoing Genesis, is saying this in this passage. The man is source of the woman. What he is referring to here is the fact that Eve was taken from the rib of Adam. Adam was the source of Eve. Adam was the source of Eve. Adam was first, and then out of Adam came Eve. But that first and out of aren't reflections of greater and lesser. It's a reflection of order. There's an order of relationality of male and female, of husband and wife. But again, it's not a relationship of power, hierarchy, greater or lesser. It's a relationship of order in which male and female live in right relationship to each other. So what Paul is getting at here is his desire for the Corinthians to act in their worship gathering in a way that reflects the order of the Godhead in the relationships between husbands and wives in this worship context, in this worship setting. Now, in the Corinthian context, the issue is that husbands and wives seem not to be acting in a way that reflects this right relationality. And that is seen in the way, in that particular time, in that particular place, this is seen in the way that they are covering or not covering their heads. There are cultural issues here. There are are, are cultural expressions that are going on here that may not be the cultural expressions that we have, but that take us to the key point, which is underneath. Let's dig back in now to verses four through six. Every man who prays or prophesies with, with his head covered dishonors his head. In verse four, it says that. In verse five, it says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So there's something key here about honor and dishonor that is going on in the gathering of the church of Corinth. There are practices in the church that are bringing dishonor on those who are participating and so are bringing dishonor of uh, on God. There are different ways, as I said, to understand this, but I think the best way, my best understanding is that what's going on here, what's primarily problematic here, is that men and women are behaving in ways that are bringing dishonor to themselves and to God by reflecting practices from the pagan culture that they used to belong to, but now are called no longer to belong to. They are converts from pagan religion. They're being called to dwell in a new relationship with each other in the church, but their practices aren't representing that newness, that new calling that God has placed on their lives. For men, the Roman practice was that when you went into a temple to worship, you would cover your head. What Paul is saying is men, you no longer are, it's no longer necessary for you to to cover your head. 
That's your former way of life. That was a symbol that reflects a pagan understanding of prayer, a pagan understanding of the gods. But now you have a new life in Christ. So men ought not dishonor themselves, ought not dishonor God by covering their heads with this inappropriate symbol that reflects the culture around them. For women, unbounded hair or or uncovered hair or shaved heads, all of these reflect pagan ways as well. And particularly, they they, they reflect inappropriate sexualized ways of carrying the self, which would dishonor the husband and also would dishonor God. So these practices in the Corinthian context are more than just about hairstyles or hair coverings. They are reflections of false allegiances. They are reflections that that, that symbolize husbands and wives are dishonoring each other. They're dishonoring their spouse. And they're dishonoring God by continuing these practices that they need to leave behind in order to be part of the family of God. The way that they cover their heads, the way that they wear their hair, in that context are symbols of relationships between husbands and wives that don't reflect the image of God, that don't reflect the character of God that don't reflect the nature of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and therefore don't reflect what it means to be God's people who dwell together in relationships of honor, honoring God, and of honoring each other. Ultimately, by wearing their hair in particular ways, by men covering their heads and and women uncovering their heads, is symbolize a failure to understand that as those who belong to the body of Christ, we are called to honor God as we honor each other. Paul then continues this focus on the, the order of the Corinthian church in their worship by saying this, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. I don't know what that means because of the angels. I've tried. I, I really don't know what that means. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Again, Paul is talking about what's going on in Genesis 1. Man was created first, then woman. Adam was created, and then Eve came from Adam. When Paul says here, man did not come from woman, he's saying woman was taken from man's side. There's an order here. When he is saying woman was created for man, he is not saying woman was created to be used by men as they please. Nor was he saying women were created to be subordinate to men. Paul is reflecting the incompleteness of Adam. When Adam was created, God said it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so he created Eve for Adam. 
but that four atom isn't there's within that is a mutuality. They both need one another. They are both strengthened in their relationship with one another and both together reflect the image of God. What Paul is driving to in this passage is this mutuality between men and women in this mutual honoring of each other that brings a mutual honoring of God together as we worship him. When he says in verses 11 and 12, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. There's a mutual dependence that he's talking about here. There's a togetherness that he is talking about here. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. Yes, woman came from man originally, but now every man that exists in the world in all of history was born of a woman. There are no women without men, and there are no men without women. Mutuality, oneness. And this ultimately is what Paul is driving towards. He's driving towards the gospel of mutuality, the gospel of oneness. I think this is the key to the whole passage. Verses 11 and 12, this interdependence upon uh, of male and female upon each other. This is what Paul is wanting them to symbolize in their worship. This is what Paul is wanting them to grasp about their relationships to one another. They no longer belong to relationships of hierarchy, like in the pagan culture around them. They no longer are to belong to factions, like in the pagan culture around them. All of that is to be stripped away. When we come together as the body of Christ, we are coming together with a new people, with new relationships. And husbands and wives has a very particular way of symbolizing this in Paul's context in the way that they wore their hair in our context, in the way that we honor each other, in the way that we love each other, in the way that we depend upon each other. And that relationship between husband and wife becomes a picture to the church about all of us, all of our relationships. So we can get lost in hairstyles, We can get lost in hair length. We can get lost in head coverings. But ultimately what Paul wants us to understand is that in our mutual relationships with each other as women and men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, freed from the hierarchical power struggle relationships of the world around us, we can dwell together in this new church community, in this community that is the community of the resurrected Jesus, that is the community of the Spirit of God. God can create relationships among us. He can do things among us that honor him and that honor each other. Because we are representatives of God's kingdom. We are representative of God's loving rule. Husbands and wives, our relationships are not about power struggles and power dynamics, but about mutual self-giving. In the gathering of the church, all of us in our life together as the church, it's about mutually honoring each other, mutually serving one another, 
laying down our lives for each other because we follow the Jesus who laid down his life for us. This is our calling as Emmanuel Covenant Church. This is our calling as the people of God to be a people who honor each other, whose life together is ordered in a way that reflects the very nature of the God that we worship. And that when we come together for worship, we do that in a way that truly brings worship to God, that honors him, even as we honor each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for this calling that you have placed on our lives as the church. We can't do this in ourselves, God, in our in our own lives, in our own relationships. We struggle with power. We we try to assert ourselves over others. We do this in our marriages. We do this in our work lives. We do this in the relationships that we have with our extended family. But in you, God, you promise by the Spirit that you create new relationships among us. And I pray that that would be the case here at this church, that here at Emmanuel, that you would be honored in the way that we honor each other, that you'd be honored in the way that husbands and wives love each other, in the way that we symbolize who you are, that we would be honored in all of our fellowship as the church. We pray in all of this that you would receive the glory. So we pray that you would do among us what we can't do for ourselves in creating us to be this new people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.